0: You know, I've been around a lot of different people and, and a lot of very successful winemakers from all over the world. And you, you just take a little bit from them and then you sort of make your own decisions up around it um, and hope for the best a little bit. Because there is, I guess, an a element of, you know, um, let's see what happens.
1: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Kiora. Eddie McDougall is the talented face behind the Flying Winemaker. He is also the Chairman of the Asian Wine Review, Wine Judge and TV Personality, Don't be fooled by his baby face. This man knows the wine business. Eddie joins us today to tell me more about his life, unrestricted by boundaries. Hi Eddie, thanks for joining me.
0: No problem. Thank you very much for having me. It's uh, great to be on this
1: podcast, and of course, um, chatting to you after all these years. I know. I mean, you're such a busy person, and I figured, you know, trying to lock you down for a, a brief half an hour or so would be quite challenging. But uh, I shouldn't be surprised that you're incredibly organised, and you know, you said yes without any hesitation.
0: No, of course it's. Uh, it's been a, a strange few years, but you know, after thousands of Zoom meetings and team meetings and and whatever, I think uh, there's no excuse for not being uh, contactable or, or um, you know, available, you know, there's, there's many hours in a day. So, And I'm also, also trying to find times to get away from the kids because uh, there's only so many times you can do uh, work from home situations. But.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a silver lining to kind of all situations, isn't there? Eddie, you've had a career that stretched over 20 years, which, you know, to look at you, you can't even believe that. Um, Where did the itch all start for you with wine?
0: Well, it's actually um, a bit like most of our friends who, you know, got into wine. It's a lot of late nights in, um, you know, doing part-time jobs in hospitality venues, you know, as you're going through your first bachelor degree, not really knowing what you want to do. So, you've just, you know, got yourself into like a generic business degree or an arts degree and and you're living the uni life, you know, working in pubs or restaurants or, you know, cocktail bars and whatever and I was in Brisbane um, at the time doing an undergrad degree in business and, you know, worked in in a really wonderful restaurant called Isis Brasserie. Which is sadly no longer um, around because they had an epic wine list. They won like Gourmet Traveller Wine List of the Year, um, and, and for a Brisbane restaurant back in those days, I'm talking in the in the um, late 90s. You know, to, to be have you know to be given that sort of level of recognition against its Sydney and Melbourne counterparts, um, it was incredible. And there was one night um, I was waiting a table on a Tuesday night. It was myself and the owner and um, chef. Um, pretty much, and then there was one other um, bussy on, at that restaurant. Um, you know, Tuesday night quiet, but everything felt, you know, all the wheels fell off, and you've been in restaurants as well, Shanta. Um It's the worst nightmare from a... Uh, uh, hospital workers' perspective where, you know, the meals were going to the wrong people, the steaks were overdone, or underdone, I was pouring wine into the wrong glasses, the wrong people, and it just happened that this group of people that were there that night were um, uh, uh, a bunch of uh, Labor Party politicians who had just come out of a, a meeting. Um, so, you know, th- there was relatively important Queensland politicians at that point in time, and they, they just got fed up. They, they, they walked out. Um, after their main course, no, we don't want dessert, we didn't, we're not going to finish the bottle of wine. Um, so being the only table, there was no no tips that night. Um, and, and the only thing that was the saving grace was a, a bottle of Pinot Blanc from Alsace um, by a producer called Paul Paul Blanc. So owner was cashing up, I was sitting at the bar, and goes, well, there's no tips to count, so you may as well just drink this. Um, and I didn't drink wine at that time. I You know, I was a Bacardi Breezer and Valky Cranberry boy back then, um, being only sort of 18, 19-year-old and, you know, looking for the quick buzz back then. Um, But I sat down and I had the other colleague next to me and I took a sip out of this wine Like, and and I didn't swirl, didn't do anything, knew nothing about wine. And the the moment that that wine sort of just hit my lips, I turned to the guy next to me and um, I don't know if I can say this on the podcast, but I said, holy shit, this is delicious, I need to go learn how to make this. And it was a, a halo moment. It was literally the moment of clarity that I knew that I was destined to go learn, learn about wine, um, more importantly, go make wine and um, venture into a, into a space where, you know, and it's – I mean, it, I'm very, very lucky that I had that moment that instantly created a passion and, and, a, and a sense of, you know, journey and a discovery moment. So that was it. Ever since then, I've never turned back. I've been to meet the guys behind the Paul Blanc wine and been at that vineyard and tasted it and sort of ventured around and sort of been to the holy grail of where the inspiration all started. And and, and yeah, and, and here we are today.
1: That's insane that you first of all, just your first reaction was, "I need to know how to make this." I mean, what an inquisitive mind. Most people would say, "I need to drink more of this <laughs> as a starting point. And I can't believe you've all, you've actually been over there and and what was that experience of telling them that that kind of inspired you? What was that like when you when you went over to Alsace?
0: Oh, it was crazy because it was um it was right after I kind of finished. My winemaking degree, and done a couple of vintages in the Clare Valley and um, in in Geelong, in Victoria. And actually, I just finished the vintage with uh, Giant Steps and Steve Flanstea that time as well. So this was 2008, and I, you know, had d- done my Australian vintage rounds and went over to um, Europe. Got managed to land an amazing vintage job with Bietti. Um, and I did a European pilgrimage and I thought the first stop I've got to do is just literally go meet this guy behind these vines and, and you know, be be show in that vineyard. Um, so I, I called up and set up an appointment because back then even emails were a bit loose in terms of being people replying to you. So I made sure I called up, um, hopped on the train from Paris, straight over across the Strasbourg, got a bus. Um, he picked me up from the, from the entrance of the Kintzheim village, um, and he goes, we're doing the tour, so he, he literally drove me around, and I told him the story like in the, in his um, truck, and um, I said, dude, you, you, you've you've c- completely changed my life. Like, um, this is, and at that point in time, I was going through a lot of personal stuff as well. My dad had just passed away, and so it was, it, it was like a real like a going to Mecca moment uh, for me, and for them, it was also like, wow, this guy's so passionate about our stuff like that let, that's you know give them the time of day because you know quite often people get these emails and requests to go visit places and they're like, oh, okay there's another customer coming to buy some wine but these guys really spent the time with me showed me the vineyards and you know sent me packing with more bottles than I could carry in my backpack so I was you know drinking Grand Cru riesling in in my hostels <laughs> throughout
1: Europe <laughs> because of these guys that's incredible story I mean just special for them but really special for you was this before or after you finished your degree in um, Bachelor of International Business at, uh, at Griffith? This
0: was after. Yeah. So, I finished that like early 2003 um, or 2003, yeah, 2003 was when I finished and then I went straight into wine science and viticulture at Melbourne Uni.
1: Because, okay. I mean, really your your two degrees, one of business and then, you know, one in wine tech and viticulture, they're really you know, the basis for everything that you do. I have no doubt that they've been really instrumental in helping you um, gain all the understandings to do all the different avenues that you do. Um, what, you said you spent some time at Vietti as well. So after you finished your degree and you thought, I need to see the world of wine, what are the biggest takeaways that you had from visiting the different wineries and the different places?
0: Look, I think uh, the, the, uh, the most important thing I think is that, You know, you've got to take the approach that um, it sounds weird to say, but you know, as much as you're educated and whatever, you still know nothing. Um, Every region, every producer, every um, vineyard, you know, every seller hand has a different method and a different way of doing it. Whether it's better or worse or improved and slightly tweaked to to adapt to the environment or the situation, there's never a cookie cutter solution to to anything uh, in the the world of wine. Um, So I've taken that every experience or every place that I go to or everyone that I meet as more of a learning experience. Um, and that I think that's what's kept me going because if I don't keep learning, then for me, there's no motivation. And the, the, the commercial side or the, you know, the, the, the fame and the glitz and glamour is, is, sure, it's nice. But for me, there's a much deeper part where the educational piece and the forever learning journey which, you know, to the day that I go to my grave, I don't want to stop learning about wine and how to do things better or differently or how to communicate it differently. So, yeah, that's a a huge part of it.
1: I've heard people say things like that before and I love it. But do you ever get to a point where you think, I just want to relax for a bit? Like, I don't want to keep learning. I need to just have some time off.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think, um, Everyone, you know, whether you're a professional sports person playing rugby for the Wallabies, um, you you need to have a, you know, a a Kit Kat moment, you know, and uh, take a break and and step away and do something slightly different. Um, And and for me, you know, with all the the wine stuff and, you know, being inundated with wine and good meals and, and, you know, friends in the wine industry, you've got to – tap out with you know whether it's family stuff or whether it's sports um, or whether it's other hobbies or other interests Um, like for me more recently um, you know I've taken an interest in whiskey so I've started investing in casks of whiskey um, in in Scotland Um, and and being a McDougal I kind of felt this is an interesting connection with the McDougal family story Um, so I've taken an interest in whiskey um, and you know because I'm learning about whiskey. I guess that's another learning moment, but it's a break from from the wine stuff. And then obviously, you know, to take a complete break from a health side of things obviously is is sport. And um, you probably can allude that I'm you know, a fan of rugby, uh, rugby union and, you know, I coach um, kids rugby. I, I play myself and have played, you know, since I was six years old. And you know that, that that's the other side of me. That you know, if, if none of the wine stuff ever existed, I'd probably end up, um, you know, being a, a rugby coach or working in a sports administration and rugby or whatever. So, so yeah, there's, there's 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 two sides to me, I guess.
1: I think it sounds like a, a balance, you know, with a little bit of everything. So, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you're getting into whiskey as well. As soon as you said that, I thought of yeah, of course you are. <laughs> but tell me, so. You set up Eddie McDougal Wines after you've done your travels to Vietti and, um, you know, worked with Giant Steps. You then set up uh, Eddie McDougal Wines. And in 2018, you acquired Gladstone Vineyard in the wire wrapper of New Zealand. So how did that come about? Did that have something to do with rugby as well?
0: Uh, I wish it did. but um, And and I've always said that, you know, New Zealand's the best place on earth to live outside of Australia, of course, uh, because, you know, there's, there's basically religion of rugby and they make delicious wine but um the the wire upper Gladstone vineyard opportunity came about because for for a number of years i was looking for a business and an established vineyard to to acquire for um for our portfolio i guess Uh, and you know we'd looked in australia we'd we'd um explored places in margaret river which i'm hugely passionate about is um margaret river you know when it comes to australian fine wine but the next best stop from a uh new world perspective you know within our within our reach was was new zealand and you know we we were looking you know all over the country not necessarily in the warapa so south island um you know all the way up in auckland and hawkes bay and so, so forth but gladstone was was a timing moment um the previous owners needed to exit due to age and retirement um we saw great potential in the region. Um, its proximity to Martinborough and its different um, wine style compared to Martinborough um, meant that we could carve out a new niche for ourselves, um, you know, relatively quickly. But also, you know, have access to, to vines that go back to 1986, which. You know, from New Zealand's perspective, there aren't that many um, vines that go back that old. So, you know, having that, that luxury of, you know, working with established vineyards and so forth was was awesome. And at the same time, Gladstone comes with a, a network and a distribution network, you know, across the globe. So, we were, you know, we weren't picking up from a, a standing start, so to speak. Um, Though, you know, we've changed a lot and reshaped the wines a lot and obviously brought in some excellent talent to help me, you know, drive the vision of of Gladstone Vineyard to be, you know, one of New Zealand's top Pinot producers.
1: Well, it certainly is. And uh, even, you know, Jancis Robinson uh, speaks so highly about uh, Gladstone Vineyard. Probably one of my favourite regions to drink Pinot Noir from in New Zealand. I've always had a bit of a love affair for the wrapper. Of course, we know Martinborough and Gladstone and Marston. but what makes the wire wrapper unique and what makes Gladstone as a sub-region unique for Pinot Noir or other great varieties?
0: Yeah, look, it, it's it's actually a, a really good question because not a lot of people understand, you know, um, the the regional differences or the sub-regional differences in the wire wrapper because so much is, is hinged on brand Martinborough and what happens in Martinborough. And Martinborough's. Been instrumental in you know I guess putting the wider wire wire upper region I can still barely say the proper name properly um, on on the map, but um, Gladstone itself is a you know it, it's a it's a slightly cooler location. Um, it's later in terms of its ripening timelines compared to Martinborough. Um, Martinborough Pinots are, are are quite muscular and quite big, whereas Gladstone sub regional or even if you go to Masterton, um, are more elegant, slightly more feminine. I would say they're probably more on the spectrum of being more perfumed. Um, and at the end of the day, that it's there's a number of things. It's obviously its proximity to um, to riverbed soils, um, and, and you know that that wider Wairapa region has the influence of the coast as well. So it does have Macedonian range. Um, the region also has huge amounts of sunlight. So from a perspective of having clean, ripe, mature flavoured grapes, you know, no matter what variety it is, um, you know, the wider region has those those benefits. But we we love sort of what Gladstone, the sub region has in terms of, you know, it's very alluvial, rocky riverbed soils, which, you know, for for the best part of it, there's a very own like a thin layer of clay. So there's not much water retention in the topsoil. And what we have, you know, in our stable is a few vineyards which are irrigated and some that are completely dry-growing. And we've noticed that our dry-growing sites perform amazingly. Um, And, you know, New Zealand's relatively fortunate that it gets very good annual rainfall, um, unlike, you know, our friends in Australia who really struggle and need the irrigation inputs. Um, And we're able to get very natural, um, you know, ripe and, and mature fruit that, you know, can can basically do its own thing once it hits the winery. That there isn't much more to do if you can get the grapes right. From our perspective, in that in that part of the world, and um, you know, and one p- thing people don't realise about Masterton as well is, you know, that is really the 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 home of Pinot Noir in New Zealand. The first vines were of Pinot um, came from French settlers were put over there 200 years ago. Um, so it, it's it, it's got the spiritual home component to it as well.
1: I think also, you know, just the the region in general, I love that, you know, it's not far from Wellington, so you can have a little bit of that city experience. But then you've got, you know, three distinct areas with wines that really reflect, I think, the the sub-regions you know I've always found the Martinborough wines to have really great structure but the Gladstone wines crazy aromatics you know like really perfumed but then a lot of the savory undertones I don't know if it's hints of clay but especially with Pinot Noir I find that there's just so many aromatic layers you know there's kind of mushroom and then it gets into the nitty gritty of that kind of charcuterie there's just so much going on but I think as a region to visit um, there's so much on offer in quite and and some really you know established um, estates as well. So there's so much to do if you just want to visit the Wireapper. You're going to have an amazing time.
0: Yeah, no, totally. It's it's um, it's very blessed. Obviously, being so close to Wellington and, and having sort of a, a pretty high profile sort of community of wine making fraternity sort of, you know, all very close to each other and very, very knowledgeable and very open when it comes to knowledge, knowledge exchange. So, you know, the the wines are progressively getting better and they're evolving. Um, I think the, the, the I guess the, the long and short of it is that, you know, at the end of the day, the, the New Zealand industry, you know, really is only in a mature sense, commercially been going for sort of 30, 40 years um, and a very short amount of time has, you know, really put itself on the map as a fine wine producer. Um, so, and, and, you know, that dress circle in the wire wrapper of fine wine makers um, is incredible. And, you know, I think there's, a, there's a, a lot more on offer and there's a lot more learning to be done um, from the winemaker perspective. But from the access perspective from customers and people visiting from all over the country, all over the world, um, it's only a stone's throw away and a beautiful drive really nice drive through the Rimutaka Ranges.
1: Yeah, incredible. And then when, you know, if I stayed in Martinborough when I was there and I literally could, you know, go into this town centre, do a 360 and see nearly everything and then meet, you know, the characters because the community seems, particularly in the Wrap are very close and connected and um, humble as well. So, some really lovely characters that that live there.
0: Yeah, no. That's absolutely for sure, and and there's a lot of families who go back, you know, many generations who didn't start off in wine, Um, so you know there's a bit of historical conversion of of, you know crops and and farming practices and and changes, and and it's you know people have embraced you know the industry um, wonderfully. So it's not all about sheep and um, sheep and cereal crops and so forth. The wine side has really taken off in a big way because it drives tourism as well and, and visitation, and and obviously. Lots more people want to live out there now um, because of how beautiful it is. So, so yeah.
1: And they've embraced you as an Aussie.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Well, th- they've done that with a few others as well. And um, obviously, there's a bit of ownership from Australia with enscarpment um, being owned by the Torbrek um, guys. And, um, you know, that, there's, that there is, you know, some obvious uh, influences from the other side of the Tasman Um, and you know there are obviously Japanese people there you know the Saito guys Um, so there's you know it's quite multicultural and actually New Zealand's also fascinating when it comes to embracing multiculturalism.
1: Yeah they sure are can't say enough about that. So tell me about your other label the Flying Winemaker so we have Gladstone Vineyards you also have the Flying Winemaker Tell me a little bit about how that label's approached.
0: Well, that is, I guess the the core range of, of everything that we do and we believe in. And I guess it probably sings most true to myself, um, a being a flying winemaker and having made wines in various places. But the philosophy there is winemaking without borders, um, and we we chose this as you know a a mandate about what we do and who we are um, because. So much of the traditional wine world is fixated on one site, one place, one location, uh, which is all very important. And I think that's particularly important for fine wine. But for the flying winemaker, we wanted to make it more exploratory, um, make it more of an adventure for our customers, um, make it more fun for us as a winemaking team um, to go see new vineyards and new places and new regions, work with new growers. So it's it really is, like I said, it's winemaking without borders and, you know, we produce wines from Margaret River. We've got wines from the King Valley. We've got wines from the YRAP New Zealand, from Hawke's Bay, New Zealand. Um, we're exploring wine production in places like South Africa to do a Shannon because one of our team members used to work for a company called Spear in, in the Stellenbosch. Um, we're looking at um, doing collaborations with other producers in South Australia and in other parts of the world as well. So we, you know, we want this portfolio of wines to you know, almost be considered as like a dictionary for varietals. So if you tasted a flying winemaker Shiraz from, or Syrah from Hawke's Bay, it would be a definitive expression of Hawke's Bay Syrah. Or if you had a King Valley Pinot Grigio, it would be a definitive expression of a King Valley P- Pinot Grigio style. Uh, and same go, same goes for the Margaret River Cabernet Sauvignon, etc., etc. So, you know, it, it's… it's, um, it's you know, something that I thought that would be difficult for people to embrace, um, but actually people have, have really enjoyed um, being part of that journey and, and exploring, you know, different regions and different places through through the, the eyes of one producer. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, we've had a great, great amount of response and feedback and positive feedback, um, you know, with, with our range of wines. So, that's the, the whole, um, I guess, overarching philosophy and where we're going with it.
1: I think if you're reliable in that, like you said, you're you know you as a winemaker can you know explore and keep yourself interested. You know the wines are going to be creative, but also if you're able to, like you say, say this is King Valley, you know Pinot Grigio, and it, and it de- you know it's defined by the region it's grown in, and I've made it to that style then people can kind of go on that journey with you as opposed to if you said you know I'm making Pinot Grigio from the King Valley but I'm doing something super wacky and um, it does you know it didn't really represent where it came from I suppose that would get a little bit more confusing but I can completely understand you know they can just kind of come on the journey with you and go yep tell me about the King Valley tell me about Hawke's Bay you know
0: Yes, exactly. And they're very transparent wines. They're, they're completely honest. And, you know, we, we um, have, have a view that, um, you know, the winemaking inputs need to be diligent. They need to be modern. They need to have the right application of science, but it shouldn't skew the identity of, of the varietal or, or its um, place of origin. Um, so, you know, we're, we're more about just making sure that those wines remain honest and, and transparent throughout that journey, and when it gets into the glass, it's definitive. Um, and we're not, like you said, skewing off and trying to do something completely out, out there and wacky, because I don't think it'd work, and, and we'd probably lose a lot of customers and, and I guess lose a lot of faith from our, um, from our fans.
1: So you manage distribution across all of your wines globally. I mean, the last few years I'm sure have been incredibly challenging, but what, what is the approach for you to go in from one country to the next and kind of sell your wares. How do you, how do you work out how to do that?
0: Ninety nine percent of it is just building the relationship and having a empathetic relationship. Particularly over the last couple of years, um, doesn't matter if you're selling to you know the the likes of a, a major online retailer or if you're selling to. Um, a new distributor in the United Kingdom or whatever, I think it, it, it's the ability to, I guess, say that, you know, what your product is, it is what it's going to deliver from a quality perspective. Um, the other thing is that people will um, more so now buying buying brands they trust and they people obviously have much more information and access to brands and the people behind them. So, people are also investing, you know, from a distribution standpoint um, in, in those types of things, not just the strict product and what's inside the glass, so to speak, um, but what's behind the brand and the people and so forth. So there's definitely a, you know, I, I guess a, a complex web when it comes to making sure that you're set up properly so that you can go to market, um, you know, with all, with all the tools and with all the information on hand so that people feel comfortable buying, buying your wines because it, it's immensely competitive. Um, and, you know, selling wines in a competitive space, you can't be disheartened mm-hmm. by um, people saying no for the first time because, you know, if you manage to keep that relationship going, they might turn around and say, hey, we've got space for a wire rack, a pinot noir. Um, you know, why don't we try and work together? And they say, okay, great, you know, just because I've kept the relationship warm. Um, so c- c- I guess converting distribution, um, you know, no matter where it in the, is in the world, it's just about taking a – a longer-term view, um, because customers come and go, um, and you know buyers come and go from different companies. So you know you've got to keep your finger on the pulse, and, and that's difficult. That's difficult because a lot of people to keep in touch with, and uh, a lot of um, you know, I guess, a lot of companies just to keep an eye on and so forth. But at the same time, you can't stop doing the things that you do from the product perspective. You can't stop innovating. You can't stop um, you know, bringing out new stories and new wines, or you can't stop, uh, you know, getting your re- press releases out or your samples out to people. Otherwise, you you kind of become forgotten about. So there's a lot of upkeep that's involved as well um, across that. But the, the the most challenging thing, and you know, it's not so new news now. I guess you know, from our Australian wines perspective, was obviously the the impacts that it had with the um, the the China. Situation between Australia and 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 China in terms of the the wine taxes being absolutely mm. jacked up to plus two hundred percent for Australian wines, so that that basically wiped out a lot of our hard work um, in China with our Australian portfolio. But thankfully for us, um, we had the New Zealand portfolio, and, and particularly through Gladstone when we took over in twenty eighteen, it was almost the perfect timing for us to bring Gladstone into the, into China. So. You can imagine that, you know, a wine list in, say, Shanghai would have, say, maybe six or seven Australian wines. Those six or seven spaces have been completely wiped out and a lot of, you know, New Zealand or South Africa or Chile or other parts of Argentina, um, you know, have absorbed some of these spaces and and thankfully for us with our New Zealand portfolio from both the Flying Winemaker range and the Glacier Vineyard range, they've been able to absorb and, you know, take up some of that space and, you know, we were very quick to get out the, get out the gates and service China with that. So, you know, it, it's, a lot of this is timing as well, you know, from a distribution perspective and there are things that you can't control, like like I said about the the, um, the the political tax situation and so forth. So, yeah, it's a complex web to navigate.
1: It sounds like it, but I think, you know, in the last few years, a lot of businesses have, have perhaps learned that lesson of not putting all your eggs in one basket, whether it be, distribution for people, you know, not being 100% in on-premise and using a little bit of retail, but just having maybe slightly broader network um, perhaps going forward in the future so that it isn't so detrimental when, you know, something like a pandemic happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah, totally. Look, And, and there's, there's lots of other things that are influencing now as well. Like it may not be so lucrative to sell to an export market because what used to take, you know, uh, three weeks for uh, not even sorry, um, three weeks to ship to say Hong Kong or uh, maybe six weeks to, to to the UK is now taking twelve to you know sixteen weeks just to get wines to into the market, and so you're kind of sitting, you know, at the winery going, well, you know, I'm not getting paid for these wines for nearly half a year um, because they're not even in the market yet, and you can't come down on a ton of bricks to on on your distributors because they haven't been able to sell it. So, you know, you have to, you know, then think, well, I need to sell more locally, need to find ways to get into um, our, our regional network and then you kind of think of other ways to sell into the major players across, you know, Australia or New Zealand, whether it's, you know, the likes of the Dans or, um, you know, the Vino Mofos and various things. So, you, you do really have to be very agile and then that that's business and, and part of it is, is being able to, to sort of make decisions quickly, and um, and you know, like like most companies in the last couple of years, do things to, to stay alive and keep 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 the wheels on and keep staff employed. Yeah,
1: no no easy feat. But I want to ask you. Um, it's probably a, a bit of a tough question to answer, but you really have been an entrepreneur, I think, from the start of your your career. Which I hate that word to be fair, because I think it gets thrown around quite a bit. But what's your advice for people perhaps with big dreams or startup businesses, people looking to reinvent careers and roles at the moment. I think, you know, it's really a time for people thinking, well, I don't want to just be a winemaker. I want to be a winemaker and do something else, or I want to be a sommelier and I'd like to do this, or I want to be my own boss. What's the best advice you can give somebody that's kind of going down that road?
0: Look, I think the the first thing you got to do is... Just start. Um, stop dreaming. Um, there are a lot of dreamers out there and those who dream never really get to reality or never get the chance to, um, you know, experience what it's like to sort of take a take a risk. Um, and you'll know very quickly whether you can stomach it or not. Um, because at the end of the day, it, it's, it's all about risk and the appetite for, for risk and how much Risk can you absorb from a financial perspective, from an impact on your personal family life or whatever it might be. Um, obviously, risks can be calculated, but there's an element, there's there's a, a 1% of there that, which pretty much will say to you whether you cut out for it or not. Um, and, and you'll never know it unless you don't go down that path. So, look, it's not for everyone, um, but you've just got to start. Um, and whether it is starting by putting, putting pen to paper or doing something very small as a, as a test to, to see if it works, um, you know, it can only grow. Um, but it, it's not that different to saying, oh, I'm going to go start going to the gym, you know. And then you keep saying that you're gonna start going to start going to the gym or you're going to start, you know, doing running three times a week or whatever. If you actually never start doing it, you're never going to do it. Mm. So get out the gates and do it and put yourself around good people. Um, because no entrepreneur makes it on their own ever ever um, you are who you surround yourself with um, so you know it, it's you know they may not be the people that you like but you've got to be around people who have been there done that can mentor you can provide capital for you can um, provide access um, that you may not have and and that that also is probably the key to unlocking most of it is, um, you know, you are who you surround yourself with.
1: I think not being afraid to ask questions is always a good one too, but I, I agree with you sometimes, um, you know, you, you, you like you said, you may not like the person, but they're incredibly successful or you can take something away from each experience with someone that's done more than you, can't you? Even if like it may be, I don't really like the way they approach business and their personal life but I really think I could learn a little something about perhaps you know how they navigate this area.
0: Yeah totally and and it's a learning because they they would have made the same mistakes or or whatever it might have been or have a different person who can provide you a different perspective so it's about taking all that experience and no different to how I've approached you know our winemaking is that you know i've been around a lot of different people and, and a lot of very successful winemakers from all over the world and you, you just take a little bit from them and then you sort of make your own decisions up around it um and hope for the best a little bit because there is i guess <laughs> a, a element of you know um Let's see what happens.
1: Yeah, and I think you're right. That's incredibly good advice. And sometimes you've got to put your hands up and realize you can't control it all too, don't
0: you? Totally, totally. Gosh, if you can control it all, everyone would be doing it. And you know, there's lots of control freaks out there who probably control too much and don't let it happen.
1: So Mm.
0: yeah, that's a huge one.
1: Well, I think a lot of people can learn um, from those words that you've spoken. So thank you for that. Uh, Eddie, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why?
0: Well, this is one of the hard questions that I knew that I was that was coming. But um, <laughs> first of all, um, I would definitely drink a lot of Egli ourlo champagne. That, that's mm. um, my favourite champagne producer. So, um, if you had to say one, that would be that would have been the one. Um, secondly, um, I'm a bit of a sucker for Negronis. So, <laughs> Negronis is probably something that I probably can't live without, um, particularly after a long day. Um, and the the third one, th- this was you know bouncing between lots of different different things, but I think my love for Barolo wines, um, you know, it is really, you know, what I think is is stems a lot of you know um, what what I love about wine and the mystique and and you know how. It evolves and changes and, you know, having spent time at Vieti, then, you know, the Barolo wines are, are incredible. And if I had to pinpoint a producer out of Barolo, um, obviously I would say Vieti. Um, mm. you know, and any of, their, any of their staple crew wines are awesome, but, you know, I love the Roque. Um, um, and mm. if I had to identify a vintage, I'd probably say the uh, 2008 um, Roque from Vietti mm. is probably one that I can guzzle a lot
1: of guzzle an interesting word isn't it because I think I don't know if there's any other wine in the world where I've seen more people sit back and really ponder because I think that like you said you're not necessarily drinking Barolo every day unless you're maybe you know part of royalty or something um exactly and <laughs> and uh, but you're right when they're so delicious they just disappeared way too quickly as well. So uh, I, I'm really understand your love affair with Barolo. I think it's one of the most interesting thought provoking wines in the world. And uh, yeah, I, I wish I drank more to be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it, it's, yeah, like you said, that they're they're, they're, they're very, very unique in in terms of its varietal expression. Um, but you know, the, the evolution that those wines go through is just fascinating. I, I, I you, people talk a lot about Pinot Noir, but for all those, you know, from its youth, from, you know, its age, you know, oh, I mean, there's so much to it. And, and that, that's, you know, every slip is a learning experience again.
1: And, and that's definitely one that I would happily say I'm happy to learn more about <laughs> and forever keep learning and never quite grasp.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Eddie, it's been such a pleasure chatting today. Um, I've, I've learned a lot more about you and I hope um, our listeners out there have as well. And uh, congratulations on everything that you're doing. Like I said, I'm never surprised by something else that you're up to. You know, I just think I have no idea how he manages at all, but I know it's going to be a success. So thank you so much for spending time with me today. And I hope that our paths cross soon.
0: Yes, I hope so too. And um, again, thank you very much for the opportunity. I, I think... Uh, I, I think the the world of wine and drinks podcast is is growing, so I'm, I'm very 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 um, privileged and honoured to be part of it. So thanks, Shante, I
1: appreciate it. Cheers to you, Eddie. Thank you. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.